Amen. Good morning. You grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we're going to be in Luke 15. So if you brought a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Luke chapter 15. I want you to see where we're seeing this stuff. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen, and we'd love to give you a copy of the Bible in a modern, like a readable English translation on your way out. So here's a question. If you've been around church, it's possible... I mean, it seems like this happens less and less nowadays, but in the olden times, uh, it's possible that you heard what are called fire and brimstone messages, messages that make you afraid of hell. I don't know if you've ever heard those. I grew up, and that was not an uncommon sermon topic. Uh, I remember being like a six-year-old boy, and the guy, the pastor was preaching, he was talking about hell, and it scared me to death. Um, I don't know if you've felt that way before. I have. It's a pretty common experience. You go to churches that talk about that kind of thing. And honestly, we will. We do. Uh, Jesus talked about hell, so we're not going to be afraid to talk about it. We just don't maybe want to try and like beat you over the head with it. I've had that experience, maybe you have, of being scared of hell. But I'll tell you uh, something that happened this week. We were reading through a children's Bible. And I don't know if you expect to like encounter God in a children's Bible, but you should. A lot of them are pretty good. And the one we were reading was talking about Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where John, the apostle, through a vision, is brought into the throne room of God. And I've been scared of hell before, uh, but as I was reading that to my kids, it was the first time I really, I really felt uh, afraid of heaven. Uh, here's what I mean. Like, hell you think of, and you think of it the way Jesus talked about it. Is like a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a, a place where there's suffering, where there's fire and the worm never dies. But in heaven, especially the heaven that's described in Revelation 4 and 5, it's not darkness, it's light. It's not pain, it's, it's joy. You've got these massive angelic beings that are screaming out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You've got people falling on their face and throwing their crowns. But what hell doesn't have, and part of why it's scary, is that God's not there. It's finally a place where you go to be away from him forever, to be away from his goodness forever. But when you think about heaven, you think about him seated on the throne. You have to think about what it is to stand before him and who you are to stand before a holy God. As I'm reading that story to my kids, I'm thinking about, could I walk into that place? Like, what would happen to me if me walked in there with who I am, with what I've done. I felt what I, I guess the younger brother probably felt as he's going back to see the father. We're talking about this prodigal son story where there's two sons. One takes the father's inheritance, goes to a far country, spends it all on sinful living, ends up totally destitute, Dirty. He's obviously socially dirty, spiritually dirty, but now he's physically broken and dirty and he's out feeding pigs in a famine. And he thinks about, can he go back to his father? And you imagine what that had to be like emotionally to go back. We talk about eating crow. I've never had to eat crow physically. Thank you, Lord. But if you've had to do that, you know, in a relationship where you have to go and say, I was wrong. Now you have to swallow your pride, but you're also wondering, what will this person do? What will justice demand? The son probably felt that as he's going back to the father. I started to kind of feel that as I'm thinking about heaven, because if you read through scripture, it's really clear about who God is. It's clear about his steadfast love that never fails, but it's also clear about his holiness. 
And by that, we mean his perfection. The idea that he's not bad, but he's good. And he's so good that if, if we're bad, how do we stand before him? The example from Scripture is that you, you can't. So Moses, somebody that gets closer than I think anybody else in Scripture, it says in Exodus 33, so this is towards the beginning of the Bible, it's talking about this guy, Moses, that's a leader of the people of Israel, and he's going to go and stand before God. He asks if he can. But Exodus 33, 20, the Lord says back to him, you can't see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Fast forward to the end of the Bible in Hebrews, it talks about this experience. And it says, you haven't come to what may be touched You've come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest like a storm and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. The people of Israel were frightened of the presence of God and so they beg that Moses will go and stand between them and God. It says in verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses said, I tremble with fear for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I'm not trying to do the same thing that I think, you know, maybe preachers in the past have gotten in trouble for, even though I, I support what they did. I mean, the Bible talks about hell, and it's scary, so you should talk about hell as like, it's scary. I'm not trying to do that same thing. What I am trying to do is to show you what the Bible says about what it is to stand before a holy God. I'm trying to help you understand why it's, it's important for us to have something in between us. Some sort of screen, some sort of bridge, some sort of rock that we can hide in. You know, we need to be clean somehow. Towards the end of the Old Testament, there's a story of this lady, Esther. She's just a normal Jewish girl, but she's living in Persia because there's this whole deportation. The Bible's great. There's a lot to it. I can't catch you up immediately, but just take me on this. Esther, she's in this Persian land because of the deportation, because people of Israel disobedience. And the king needs a new bride. And so they go looking out for all the pretty ladies throughout the whole kingdom. And Esther's one of them. But she doesn't just go to the king. She has to go into a house and spend 12 months being beautified and cleaned up before she can go before the king. I get so angry when my wife goes to get a haircut because it takes hours and hours. <laughs> but at least it's not like a calendar year for her to go and become beautified. But that's what Esther needed to be able to stand before even just the Persian king. What do you require to stand before the holy God? If you can answer this question biblically, then you can run into, you can actually start to embrace and experience the love of God that runs to grab you even though you don't deserve to stand before him. It's not loving if it's not expensive. It's not expensive if you're not sinful and he's not holy. We got to let these values grow in our minds. We got to let that distance grow in our mind because even though it creates fear when you think about the Lord, when you understand what Jesus has done, with the net result, what happens at the end of the equation in your own heart isn't fear anymore. It's awe and that kind of fear is worship. So what we want to do today is I want to ask the question of what should happen, what, what can happen if God is going to make a way for us to go back and be before him. And, and kind of how we're following through that, that story of the prodigal son is we're thinking about what should have happened if that family, if the older brother in that story, so the younger brother goes and he's, he takes the father's inheritance and he spends it all in sinful living, but the older brother stays 
And the older brother says, good riddance to the younger brother. He allows that gap. He's thankful for that gap. He wants that dirty, sinful son gone. But that's not how God acts towards us. He's given us a different older brother. Jesus isn't an older brother, but he's given us a different person to act in that role. And I want you to see it with me today. I want you to experience with the younger brother the kind of love that can comfort his fear. But I also need you to experience as the older brother, if maybe this is your heart today, that it's impossible for you to stand before him based on stuff you've done. If hell is what we deserve, being nice and giving like, you know, you say it's 10%, but really not off the gross, off the net, and after this and after that, so, you know, it's more like hmm, 2.5% or, you know, whatever it is that you actually get. People here are very generous, and we don't have a rule, but I'm just saying, if you try to use what you think is righteousness to stand before God, and you see what it's like to stand before the Holy One, You'll understand that it's not possible. You'll start to see the real wickedness of thinking that by being good, you could somehow control him. By being good, you could somehow replace him. If you remember in the story, that's what the older brother is hoping for. He wants the same thing as the younger brother. He wants a dead dad so he can have the stuff. He's just trying to pursue it a different way. But if you see the holiness of God, you'll feel that you can't stand. You can't take him off the throne. But to feel those things, you have to experience the gospel. And so, so what I want to do is look at the first two parables from that same chapter with the prodigal, God, uh, the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15. And I want to see what Jesus is teaching about how we come to know him. Okay, here, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 3, he's going to tell two parables and they mirror each other. I want you to think about them. And if you've been with us for this series, and maybe you've got the sort of intelligence to do this, I also want you to be kind of comparing and contrasting with that prodigal son story that we keep referencing. So Jesus tells him this parable. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or here's the second parable. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently seek until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, when Jesus teaches and he uses repetition, we want to sit at that repetition. We want to see what is so important that he's saying it multiple times. What he's saying, he's describing what it's like when somebody's lost and what, what then happens for the responsible party, like what they do to try and seek the one who is lost. I, I see three different things that happens. One, that person pursues the thing that's lost. You have the shepherd pursuing the sheep that's wandered away. You know, he could say, good riddance. I want some dumb sheep making my little dumb sheep babies, lambs that are going to then continue to run away. Let's keep the 99 good ones that stay, whatever, to the other one. But he doesn't. 
He has to pursue it. Imagine what that's like. You're having to look around. You're having to scour. Maybe you're having to hike so that you can get up to a high point where you can really get out and look. You're not sure, but you're, you're spending the anxiety and the time to go and pursue the thing that is lost. It, to pursue, but then also to pay for what is lost. It's not easy to find the thing that's lost. If the thing that's lost is lost in a way that requires some sort of redemption, it's going to be expensive to find the thing that's lost. Yeah, the guy's hiking, this lady trying to find her coin has to light a lamp and sweep diligently every inch in order to search and find the coin that was lost. And then when they find the thing, they party. They got to pursue it. They got to pay for it. And then when they find it in these parables, they rejoice. And so we're going to use the third parable and the idea that the father kills the fatted calf and throws a party to make me have an alliteration so I can be a good pastor and say that they pursue, they pay for, and then they party when they find the thing that was lost. Now, here's the question today. Does Jesus do those things for you? And you all go, yes, no, okay. I know that you know that the answer is going to be that. You know, there's not suspense here. But if you allow this to really land in your own life, then you can understand that there is a little bit of suspense here. If you've ever felt the emotion of shame, some of us eat and drink it. Some of us are so proud, maybe you've never felt it. But if you've ever experienced shame, then there is some suspense about whether or not you'll be pursued by the Father. There is a little bit of suspense about whether or not you can stand before the Holy One. If you've never questioned whether or not God is going to welcome you with open arms, I have to ask whether or not you understand what holiness is and what sinfulness is. If maybe it's possible that you have drifted a little bit into that older brother mentality we've been talking about. If there is a part of you that thinks maybe I'm so awesome, why wouldn't God pursue me? Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, you're great and you're better than me, but, but biblically, to stand before the holiness of God... It's a different standard. It is a question. So let's ask it. Does, does Jesus love you enough? Does he love you like this in order to pursue, to pay for, and then to throw the party for you so that you can stand before the Holy One? Well, yes. <laughs> yes, he does. So does he pursue? Well, here's our evidences. One is that, that what we call the incarnation took place. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. It is that God became a man. Don't just flip past that in your head because it's just always been a true thing that Christianity's taught for thousands of years before you were thought of. Think about for a second the fact in the context of pursuit that nobody has pursued anyone further than heaven to earth. But that's what he did. He took on flesh in order to live among us. Hebrews again describes it when it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He doesn't, he's not a created being. He doesn't have a physical body. But Jesus takes on manness. He takes on human nature. Then, and we know this for the rest of the gospel, but through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But not only does Jesus take on flesh in order to be among us, he is among us in a very specific way. 
You think that God coming to be a man would then replicate something of Godness, that he would then establish himself in a golden throne room with layers of separation between you and him, just like any king does. I don't know if you watched the coronation of Charles. I don't know. I mean, if you turn on the TV, you can't really help but seeing a little bit of it. You can't just go and like slap him on the back and say, congrats. I mean, you can try. I don't know what would happen. We watched those Google videos, the YouTube videos with the, the Queen's Guard, and they're doing their like marching, and then tourists go, and they stand close to them because they're so disciplined, they won't do anything. You know what I'm talking about? They have the big hats that come down over their eyes a little bit, but they're holding like automatic assault rifles. Anyway, we've seen some where like the tourists are like making fun and walking behind or whatever, and they'll get a little too close, and the guy will turn and point his gun at him and scream, back away from the King's Guard. It seems silly. The idea of a king in England seems silly to me, but if you just tried to go and like pat him on the back and say, nice one, you would find quickly that they take it very seriously and that there are layers of separation between commoners and the king. Doesn't it seem reasonable that if Jesus would go so far as to take on flesh that he would also try to create a little bit of separation from the hoi polloi? But he doesn't. What is the story of Jesus' ministry? The story of Jesus' ministry is not just taking on humanity, but taking on our experiences as humanity. He becomes this itinerant preacher. He goes to live with these 12 guys in the desert. You ever camped with 12 guys? It's an experience. You get to know those 12 guys. You know what it sounds like when they sleep. You know when they have digestive issues. Like you know something. You're experiencing those guys. Jesus does this for years. He lived a life that was close to us, not far from us, even though he could have. He chose, that's kind of what people are expecting as you read the New Testament, but he chose to be close to us. He talks about himself as one who is gentle and lowly, humble in heart. A guy wrote a whole book on it named Damon Ortland. He talks about it and he says, In the rest of the four Gospels, if in the rest of the four Gospels, Jesus was different from the gentle and lowly of heart. It, it, it's possible, but he's not. But if it, if it were, if in the rest of the Gospels, Jesus was like an aloof seminary professor. Now, seminary in our tradition is something that happens after college. You go to it. It's like a pastor training school. And the professors there walk around like, you know, they're probably really humble guys. But when you're there, you're really impressed by these guys. If Jesus was like an aloof seminary professor dispensing wisdom dispassionately, or if in the rest of the Gospels Jesus was like a celebrity preacher who was whisked away to the green room and untouchable, or if Jesus was like a politician that you had to go through layers of security to get to, then Matthew 11, gentle and lowly in heart, wouldn't be accurate. But who Jesus is in Matthew 11, gentle and lowly of heart, he is on every page of the four Gospels, reaching out, touching, embracing, weeping, defending, restoring, dignifying. Oh, read that again. Dignifying, forgiving, healing, making broken people whole, giving the shamed back their God-imaging glory. Do Do you see that he pursues He pursues, he pursues you. He says about himself that he was sent after the lost sheep of Israel. Doesn't that sound exactly like that parable where the guy leaves the 99 to go and find the one? Yeah, he he pursues you. Does he pay the cost, though? 
like to find you and to bring you home would be expensive. Now, we know that the older brother stays home and doesn't go after the younger brother. But if he were a loving older brother, maybe you have the experience of a wayward sibling. And you've had to fight through those incredibly difficult battles of knowing what's best for them. Is it to go after them and pay for them and bring them back? Is it to let them kind of run out of energy? It's not easy. But if you love them and it were in their best interest to go after them, wouldn't you? Again, complicated, not making judgments on your situation, but if it were in their best interest and you did love them, wouldn't you? And finding them in debt, wouldn't you do what it took? The older brother wouldn't, but Jesus did. He came where we are to find us in the slop. I mean, the younger son leaves the father, spends everything he has on loose living. He's out of money, but whatever, figure it out. Then a famine hits. Everybody's out of money, and the poor are really out of money. So he goes to work for some guy trying to feed him what the pigs eat. But he doesn't even make enough to eat the kind of food that the pigs are eating, and he's jealous. He's totally out. He's been rejected by his community because he rejected his community. He's been rejected by his family. I mean, he certainly rejected his family. He has broken his relationship with his family. And, and before God, certainly he's a sinner. And now he's also physically filthy. I don't know what you imagine feeding pigs is like in a famine scenario, <laughs> but you're probably not a clean individual before, during, and after. And yet, when Jesus comes after us, don't you know, like famously, that he took the disciples and washed their feet? Why did he do that? They didn't have like miraculously clean feet for the rest of their life. Like, you know, an hour later, they were dirty again as they're walking up the Mount of Olives. He did it because he was showing them what he had come to do. If you know anything about Jesus Christ, you know that he died on a cross. The reason that he died on a cross is pre it's predicted it's it's prophesied it's talked about all through scripture as god makes it very clear that anyone who's hanged on a cross uh, hanged on a tree is cursed that you take you take an animal that has been you, you confess your sins on this animal in the old testament in the sacrificial system and one of them you kill and the other one that you just release out into the wilderness there's pictures over and over and over again through Scripture of what is holy and what is not holy. And what is holy gets closer and closer and closer to the holy of holies, which was this room in the middle of the temple. And what is not holy gets further and further away, gets sent outside the camp. When Jesus gets hung on a cross, it's very clear that he is being cursed. That he's hung on a cross outside the city, outside the camp. That he was perfectly pure. And yet he's, he's executed as a sinner, not just cursed by the Romans or the Jewish leadership, but cursed by God. He does what you and I deserve to pay the debt that you and I owe. Does he pay it? Does it work? Well, it says in John that before Jesus gives up his spirit, he says, it is finished. It means he has paid the full debt. 
that you and I owe before a holy God. He, he absorbs hell that you and I deserve in that moment so that when you receive him, you receive that payment. It's been paid. You're now free. You can be forgiven for what you have done before a holy God. <laughs> you have been paid for. And you say to yourself, okay, but wouldn't Jesus be like that shepherd? You know, if you were somebody who had to go to the cross for somebody else, uh, impossible to imagine, but don't you think that his heart towards you would be angry that you made him do this? I get angry. I get angry all the time at having to fix my kids' messes. You know, they're really sweet kids. It's not a sin to spill a drink. But if you spill a drink on my table, I don't receive that well. I get upset. And while I'm cleaning it up, I'm saying, hey, everybody makes mistakes. And we sing the little um, Miley Cyrus song. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. And I'm trying to say, like, I love you. I'm not angry. But on the inside, am I happy? Of course not. I'm a terrible person. I'm very upset about their mistake. How much greater if they did it on purpose? But do you understand Jesus' heart for you as he was dying for you? He doesn't just say it is finished. Before that, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He's still pleading for you, not for himself. As he bleeds out on a cross, receiving God's condemnation for our sin, not his. Yeah, he pursues you. And yes, yes, he pays for you. But then we have to ask, okay, does he throw the party? <laughs> is Christianity supposed to be this dirge where we're whipping ourselves and trying to thank him for, for what he did for us? Or is there something about it that's joyful? Well, if you read through the Jesus teaching, you see that he is saying in this first part or this uh, Luke 15 chapter that he is rejoicing, that if he is like the shepherd or like the woman or like the older son should have been and like the father is towards those that are sinful, then he is rejoicing. But is there examples, not in his teaching, but in his life, that show that he actually would rejoice, that he actually would party if he got to bring you home. Well, there's another story. It's in John chapter 4, and it's about this woman. It's, it's the Samaritan woman. And you may have read the story before. She's a lady that's a part of a group that is separated from the Jews. We talked about it maybe two weeks ago. We talked about the lepers three weeks ago. It's a group that's already separate from the Jews. They're already heretical. They've already got something that sounds Jewish, but it's not. And it's very different in very critical ways. And yet, this like kind of cult of Judaism had this woman who was even at the bottom of that cult because she was immoral by any standard. Jesus confronts her. They're talking at this well. It's the middle of the day. Jesus has sent his, his uh, disciples away into the town to buy food. So obviously, they got nothing. They're hungry. And he's sitting by this well, and he's tired. He asks the woman to draw some water for him, and they go back and forth. It becomes very clear that this woman has had five husbands, and she's now living with a guy she hasn't condescended to, condescended to marry. She's also somebody who is morally at the bottom of whatever kind of wrong there is ethically. And yet when Jesus shares the gospel with her, when he describes who he is, and she responds... And she runs off into the town to tell what happened. So this is an example, not of his teaching, but of his life, where he sees somebody repent and join his movement. Somebody that he probably wasn't 
like institutionally excited about. This wasn't somebody that was like a high up in the Pharisees or somebody that was like a high up with the Romans. This is a lady at the bottom of the bottom. But when that lady repents and responds, do you know how Jesus feels about it? It says it. It says when the guys come back, the disciples come back, they see him talking to this lady, then they don't ask what he's doing. They're just still kind of thinking it. And they say, okay, here, you know, Messiah of a teacher, eat. And Jesus says, I have food you don't know about. And they start asking each other. This happens all through John. It's a very funny thing that you can read in the Gospel of John. When people talk to Jesus and they think that everything's very physical and he's talking real spiritual. It's the thing with Nicodemus where he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, am I supposed to enter a second time into my mother's womb? And Jesus goes, ah, oh, you a teacher of Israel, you don't even understand this. You know? Here's what happens in the Samaritan story. The disciples come back and they see Jesus eat and he goes, I got food you don't know about. And they go, did anybody already give him some food? Has Jesus been holding out on us? Was he holding on to a meal and then sent us in to buy food when he had? No, they didn't immediately understand that he was talking about something that was transcendent, something that was spiritual. But what was that food? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Okay, but what was so satisfying in his heart that he didn't even care that his stomach was empty? Well, it says in verse 36, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. What does the shepherd do when he finds the sheep? He rejoices. And then he calls all the people together so they can together rejoice. What does the woman do when she finds the coin? <laughs> she rejoices. And what does she do? She calls all the people together so they can show joy together. What does Jesus do when this Samaritan sinful woman repents? Oh my gosh, he's so filled with joy at it that he doesn't even care to eat anymore. In what he's saying, this receiving and gathering wages and fruit, sower and reaper, he's talking about, he's thinking about Psalm 126 where it says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. He's saying that he is shouting with joy at the repentance of this woman. Does he want you? Yeah. <laughs> That's what he feels when you come back to him. He's so happy to have you back. Is the father crazy? Is there a, just a weird reason that Jesus would put that into the, the parable at the end about the father running to receive the younger son? Or is that exactly what he always does? So again, the question is, have you accepted this? Do you accept this? Do you think you don't need it? Because if you do, that was the first half of the sermon. We're trying to think about the holiness of God. Can you stand before him? No, of course not. You do need this. Have you accepted it? What he said in Matthew 11 that I kept alluding to, he said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're going to go now into a time of the Lord's Supper. What we do when we take the Lord's Supper, everybody that you see take the Lord's Supper is saying, by taking the bread and taking the cup, what they're saying is, I need Jesus to cover my sin. So you look around, you think these people are wearing expensive clothes, maybe look cooler than you. 
Not all of them, but you think some of them, they probably got it all together. Watch. They stand up and they take the bread and they take the cup. What they're saying is, I can't stand before a holy God. I'm covered. I'm covered in stuff that God hates. I need Jesus to make me clean. Now, the cup and the bread don't do that, but they represent having received that Jesus, having come, in t- having come to him and experiencing that he is gentle and lowly of heart, that he can give rest to your souls. So I'm just asking you, think, pray, ask some hard questions. Have you received this? Christian, before you come to take the Lord's Supper, examine your heart. If you say, yeah, I received it when I was 13. Okay, are you living this way? Is your life overflowing with the joy that comes from knowing a God who loves you and forgives you and the prayer that comes from interacting with a God who loves you and forgives you? If not, take this time to repent, to turn from that, to preach the gospel to yourself. What we're going to do, I'm going to pray when I say amen. The band's going to start playing. And I want you to take a second to just pray and prepare your heart. And if you're a baptized believer and you believe in the Jesus that we preach here at Hope Church, when you're ready, come and get the elements, take them back to your seat and hang on to them. We'll take them together in a moment. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are, we are broken people, but you have given us through Jesus a way, not just to be put back together as though our lives are going to look nicer or our souls are going to have less anxiety, but you have given us a way to be put back into relationship with you. Oh, Father, today, would you help people to see that and to want it, Lord? There may need to be lots of conversations about who Jesus is and and how all this works, and that's great. Please let us have those conversations. But, But today, would you at least, Lord, give people the desire to be pursued, to be paid for, to be celebrated like Jesus does for those who are far from God? And Lord, would you please give us the maturity in this moment to ask some hard questions individually so that you would give your church the grace to remember your gospel, that we might become bright lights and salty salt for your name in this world. Pray these things in your son's holy name.